Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. If dead churches could talk, that is our topic for these several weeks. And if you have been with us right along, we have discovered that there is a whole series, seven actually, extinct churches that have a message for our church. They have a message for Fairfax. Last week, Pastor Johnson helped us as we looked at a message from one of those churches. We press on today and go beyond what he took us through, the church at Pergamum. And today we find ourselves in the second chapter of Revelation, 18th verse, the church at Thyatira. And let me remind you, or inform you if you've not been with us before, that what we're looking at is a revelation. It's not a revelation of John, the writer. It's not a revelation about the end times necessarily, or all of the harem and scarum that accompanies the way some people talk about prophecy in the end times. But what we're looking at is a revelation of Jesus Christ. John has known him in his much younger days. He's an old man now, well into his 90s. He is a political prisoner. John is on the island of Patmos. The message of Christ that he preaches, that Jesus Christ is not dead but he's alive, is such an explosive and such an inflammatory and such a life-changing message that the Roman emperor thought it best to put him under lock and key. And so John is a political prisoner on a work camp island, and on the Lord's day he has a vision that we call the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, it is a picture that John receives of his old friend Jesus, and it's a picture that he had never had when he was walking with him by the Sea of Galilee. He sees Jesus in a whole new way. And so as this letter that we're looking at, really seven letters to seven different churches, as it unfolds, it begins first with a picture of Jesus. Let me turn your attention to Revelation chapter number 12, verse number 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, that is a city in the Roman province of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to the angel, to the pastor, to the leader of the church in Thyatira, write this, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. That's a description of Jesus Christ there. We'll come back to it in a moment. He says this, I know your deeds. This is Jesus talking now to the church. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. In all the pages of Scripture, there is none worse than Jezebel. There is no female worse than Jezebel. There is no male worse than Jezebel. She is the perfect picture, the complete and awful picture of rebellion against God. And he says, I have this against you to this church that you tolerate the woman that Jesus calls Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. 
And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. Imagine Jesus saying this to a church. You're tolerating a woman that does all that, and I've given her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So they would get a second chance unless... And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching. And we can only hope that that was the majority of the church. Who do not know the deep things of Satan, as they call them. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what, I, what you have, hold fast until I come. Now listen to this, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with the rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this is a new picture of Christ. It's first seen by John, and now it's passed on to us. And this new description of Christ, this new picture of Christ, it focuses, as you see, on his eyes. When Jesus presents himself to this church at Thyatira, a church that has a message for us, a church that would speak to us, the thing that we notice first are his eyes. It says his eyes are a flame of fire. They're a flame of fire, the eyes of Christ, ready to burn away any covering that this church might be using to hide its sin from him. How many know people spend a lot of energy, a lot of money, a lot of time trying to hide themselves from God? And if this church would do anything of that sort, anything it might use to hide its sin from God, they're the, the, the eyes of fire, ready to burn away that covering. And when you try and hide, listen to me, anything from God, after all, who's the one getting fooled? It's only you. You don't hide anything from God. And if you think you do, you're the only one that's being fooled. And then our attention are drawn to this description of Christ. We see his eyes, but we also see his feet. They're burnished bronze, polished, highly polished bronze. That means they are the finest of that metal. There are no contaminants there. And what that's telling us is that in his walk on earth and now his walk in heaven, that Jesus has been free from any and every sin. He is spotless. You realize even when they tried him, they could not find anything wrong with him. Not even his critics could point to one word, one deed that was out of place that was wrong. And what did they have to do? They had to hire professional liars to come in and make up stories because they could not find, even the hostile witness could not find anything that he had done wrong. And with these burnished bronze feet, no contaminants, it's telling us that in his walk on earth and now his new walk in heaven, that he continues to be free from any kind of sin. And he is ready then to bring judgment on sin. He alone is the one who has that right because he is the, lone, is the one who is sinless. And then in verse 19, it moves into a commendation. A commendation. There will be a commendation and a condemnation. 
But first in 19, he commends this church. He has many things to say about this church that are good and noteworthy. He, he, he notes that they had not lost their first love. We've already looked at one church that spoke to us about that, where the Lord had to say to that church, the church at Ephesus, I have this against you. In spite of all of the things that you're doing that are good, I have this against you, says Jesus. You have left your first love. And how easy it is sometimes to get involved in the things of God and fall out of love with God. But not this church. Thyatira had not lost its first love. He tells them that. I know your deeds and I know your love. Compared well to other churches, they did in this category of love. And they're also noted for their service. You can see that. The word that's used for service here, your service is great. He, he, the word is a Greek word, diokonia. It means ministry. And so it's talking about the ministry of the leaders of their church was exceptional. But it also means the ministry of the gifts of the Spirit. In our class right before this one, we talked at some length about the meaning of the gifts of the Spirit and the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, all supernatural gifts within the body of Christ. We talked about that in our, in our hour before this one. And when it came to the ministry of the gifts, they were good there too. And that's always the sign of a healthy church. But when it talks about the Diaconia, it's, it's talking also about their service to the poor, to the hurting, to the widows, to the orphans. There was generous giving of aid and time and money because theirs was a brand of Christianity that you could see every day of the week. Patience is also mentioned. As Jesus has much to commend this church, he, he brings up their patience. You have great patience. There's a Christ-like fortitude in the lives of these people. They're going through difficult times, but they still will not buckle. They will not give. They will not give in to the things of the world, and they have great patience in their suffering, and he commends them from that. And in fact, he says that the good things that they're doing, and there are many of them, they are steadily increasing. All in all, this is a grand report. The deeds of late are greater than at first. It's an outstanding commendation. It's an outstanding compliment to this church family. And Thyatira has already said very much to Fairfax. But in the 20th verse, he moves into a condemnation. Let me read it again. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and she leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I can't emphasize with you enough the importance of studying God's Word, and that brings me back to the, to the class that we had before this one. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this very issue of women in leadership in the church, and you know that there are many church bodies that say, oh no, we don't do that. No, 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 no. But you won't find scriptural support for that. And here, even though it's a backhanded compliment, we've got a woman, a prophetess, who is openly teaching in the church. That is not the problem. It's what she is teaching, you see. She's a Jezebel is what Jesus calls her. Now, this warning that's given here, this condemnation given to the church at Thyatira is among the most serious that will be given to this series of seven churches, and it is certainly the longest. 
for all the good things that Jesus has to say about Thyatira, there is a spirit, listen, a spirit of compromise here. We saw in the church at Pergamum that they compromised too. But in their case, the pressure seems to have come from outside because Jesus warns them there about pressure coming from a place called Satan's throne that caused them to compromise. But in this church at Thyatira, it's from inside the church the pressure comes to compromise. It comes from the woman, that woman. Some translate it your woman, which could mean your wife, which may mean the pastor's wife is the problem. Jesus calls her Jezebel. And again, Jezebel is the worst of the worst. I'll leave you to research yourself this week and find out exactly why it is that this Jezebel, in all of her wickedness, she ends the story and she exits the stage of history as she is thrown on the street and there she is eaten by dogs. It's a cruel punishment, but there's a reason for it. And Jesus calls this woman, this prophetess in the church, this cancer from the inside, he calls her Jezebel because she's like the worst of the worst. Apparently, this woman is looked up to she is followed, she is admired, but she was saying that her teaching is above Jesus' word. And she was teaching that it's all right to mix God's words and the world's ways. In fact, explicitly sexual immorality and idol worship, those are all okay, she said. She told the people in the church, as long as you keep coming back to church, it's okay to do those things. Well, Jesus had already dealt with her by his own testimony here. He'd already given her opportunity to repent. He'd already dealt with her and given her time to turn, but her basic attitude would not change. She was mixing the world with the things of God and saying that that's okay. And so the point that's being made is a very simple one. She is a type of worldliness, and she has no place in the church. Our stance toward her should be what's talked about in verse 20. We should not tolerate worldliness in the family of God. Now, in days gone by, a topic like worldliness needed no explanation. But today we have to explain what we mean by worldliness. Worldliness is placing anything above God. Now, this applies only to believers. It doesn't apply to people out in the world. And very often, we want to take our standards and apply them to people out there. And we're doing the very thing that the Pharisees in Jesus' day did. The Pharisees were professional list makers. And there's nothing wrong with making a list. But don't ask somebody else to live by your list. These things apply only within the church, not outside. And for believers, what, I, what it means by worldliness is to place anything above God. Anything above God. Now, there are plenty of false prophets even today. Some of them go by the name of Christ. Some of them have very well-padded ministries on television. And there are no shortage of false prophets that will stroke your conscience and tell you it's okay to pursue wealth and power and fame and pleasure and fun at any price and still serve God. Those things are compatible. There are plenty of people that will tell you that today. But the gravest of warnings is given to this Jezebel, to the woman who says that and teaches that. It's the worst of warnings. 
The Lord says, I will cast her on a bed of sickness, and some who follow her will in fact be killed. They will forfeit their life. And we look at that and we say how harsh that is. There are people, you've talked to them, you hear them on national talk programs, who say, I refuse to believe in a God who could be so cruel, who would cast somebody on a bed of sickness in this case, and some would be killed as a result. I refuse to believe in a God like that. But in no place is it implied that Jesus wants this. He takes no delight in this. He's simply stating a fact. You know, throughout the pages of Scripture, God takes the blame for everything. Because ultimately, He's the one who set it all in motion. He intended it for good, but things have gone very bad in many cases. And he takes the blame even for that. Because he ultimately is in back of everything that does happen. God says, you want to blame somebody for a disaster? Blame me. You want to blame somebody for something that went wrong? Blame me. After all, that's the point of the cross, isn't it? He takes all the blame. But think about it. When you run from God, whether it's as this woman and her followers or any one of a million and one other ways that we can rebel and run from God, when you run from God, think about it, when you run from the God of all goodness, could there be any other result but disaster? Could there be any other result than disaster? He's the only game in town. Worldliness in any, in any form, it has no place in the church. But when worldliness happens, when this is what happens, well, then there are consequences. And being cast on a bed of sickness and forfeiting life, that's what happens when we walk away from God. There can't be any other outcome if we rebel against all that's good. Worldliness in any form has no place in the church. This church says, you tolerate it. Don't. Don't. Anything that sets itself up higher than God, don't tolerate it. Not in our life together, not in our worship, not in our outreach, not in your personal life. Let me even say in how we spend our leisure time, don't let anything take the place of God. Thyatira has something to say to us after all these centuries, doesn't it? I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on two incredible promises that we read. Let me direct your attention to the 26th verse, same chapter 2. I want us to focus for a moment on two promises here. One is a promise of position. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him I will give authority over the nations. That's a promise of position. The one who overcomes and keeps my deeds till the end. Just stop there for a minute. It's not how you start. It's how you finish this thing. How often I've seen people that you could describe as a spiritual flash in the pan. 
They seem to make some motion toward God and everything is wonderful for a season, but then you check back in a few months and they've slid backwards. They're like that ground that Jesus talked about where the seed is choked out by the cares of the world and the concerns of the world. And they're a flash in the pan spiritually. It's not how you start, you see, it's how you finish. He who overcomes and keeps my deeds till the end receives this promise of position. And it's a position of authority. He says he has something in mind for us where we will be in charge of something and something big. Now the question is when. The answer to that is at the end, at the great consummation of the ages, when the new heavens and the new earth, when everything is finally right and restored, then he will give us all a position, he says, of authority. To those that overcome that hold on and keep my deeds to the end. You receive this promise of position, and it's a position of authority, and it's a position, listen, of satisfaction. Whatever God is going to have you doing in eternity, and it's probably not just one thing, it's probably a million things, because after all, eternity never ends, does it? But whatever he's going to have you do, it's going to be a place that's perfect for you, a place where you are intensely satisfied with what you will be doing. What's the, what's the source of job dissatisfaction? Let's play HR person for a while. What are they coming to me saying I don't like about my job? What makes this job difficult? What makes it unsatisfactory for me? It's not a good fit. I'm not prepared for this. I'm not knowledgeable enough. I'm not confident enough. There are too many demands. It's too much. Do you realize that right now, and with every tick of the clock since you've come to Christ and even before, that you are being prepared for something? You're being prepared for eternity. That everything that's ever happened to you is part of the job training for eternity. Everything, good and bad. This last week I was part of an interview committee interviewing people seeking ministerial credentials and, and I had the privilege of praying with one credential candidate. She feels a call to Ethiopia and along about June, we're going to hear from her and hopefully we'll be able to help her get to Ethiopia to reach people that have never heard of Christ. But this young lady feeling called to Ethiopia at the end of the interview, I prayed with her and I prayed that very thing with her, helping her to understand that all of the experiences she, she, that she has ever had in her life from the time she was a baby on, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, Tragedies, reversals, joys, everything. It's all been material to prepare her for what God is doing. The Bible says we are being equipped every day so that as followers of God, we may be adequate for what it is He's preparing us to do. What happens now, listen, shapes you for eternity. 
It shapes you for the role you're going to play, this position of promise and authority that you will play in eternity. You are being shaped every moment of every day as a child of God. You're being equipped for your role in eternity. So what does it mean about now? What's that got to do with now? Well, it means, firstly, that right now affects eternity. You're affecting eternity now by the things that you experience and how you deal with them, how you allow the Holy Spirit to deal with you through them, that right now affects eternity. So don't run from experiences, even the hard ones, even the heartbreaking ones, even the difficult ones, because you're being prepared for a work a work that one day will give you intense joy. You're being prepared for a purpose that will bring you incredible satisfaction in the plan and scheme of God. And you notice that this promise of position and authority, it's a wonderful handoff. You see what it says? As I also have received authority from my Father... He gives us in that day the authority that he's received from the Father. So it's a wonderful handoff we're to notice here. He received authority from his Father and then he passes it on to us. And so coming from the Father, that means what we'll be doing is his work throughout eternity. We'll be doing the work of God. Do you see that? Do we, do we have any concept of the immensity and the staggering size of things as they really are, of the work that God has prepared for us, how big eternity is? Do we have any idea? The immensity of eternity. We, we think about eternity and we say, oh, it's probably going to be a lot like here, only a little bit better. No. It's huge immense. One of my favorite writers is Mark Twain, and he wrote a story that took him 40 plus years to write. He entitled it in an extract from Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. And it involves a, a captain of a steamship who dies, and you're given to understand that he is speeding at many times the speed of light toward hell which he deserves. But along the way, he is in a boat, of course, speeding to hell. He's going whizzing past the comets and the planets and the galaxies when he sees a meteor. And he decides to try and outrace it. And in outracing that meteor, he gets just a little off course. And when he arrives at where he arrives... It's not hell, it's heaven. He doesn't belong there. They weren't expecting him because he doesn't belong there. Added to that, he winds up in the screwiest looking part of heaven he could imagine, where the creatures there don't even look like people. He goes into a gate and he goes up to the counter and there's this creature there that is intelligent and can speak to him and he begins to ask... Where's my place in heaven? 
And the guy behind the counter says, well, where are you from? That makes a difference where you go in heaven. What part of the universe you're from? And he said, well, I'm from the world. He said, silly, there are billions of worlds. Which one? The earth. He said, I've never heard of it. Nobody around here has heard of the earth. And so Captain Stormfield begins to panic, and he says, well, it's in the same solar system as Mars. Never heard of it. The moon, never heard of it. And Jupiter. And the man says, hold on a second. It seems like eight or 900 years ago, there was a man here who said he lived near a place called Jupiter. Maybe we can help. And so he calls over an assistant. Let me pick the story up. He has found out that the reason he's at the wrong gate of heaven is because of that trying to outrun the comet, and he scolds him for it. And the man behind the counter says, no difference. That divergence has made all the trouble. It's brought you to a gate that is billions of miles from the right one. If you had gone to your own gate, they would have known all about your world at once. It would have been no delay. But we're going to try and accommodate you. And he turned to an underclerk and he says, what system is Jupiter in? I don't remember, sir, but I think there is such a planet in one of the little new systems, away out in the thinly worlded corners of the universe, I will see. He got a balloon and he sailed up and up and up in front of a map that was as big as Rhode Island. And he went on up until he was out of sight, and by and by he came down and got something to eat and went up again. To cut a long story short, he kept going like this for a day or two, and finally he came down and he said he thought he had found that solar system, but it might be just fly specks. So he got a microscope and he went back. It turned out better than he thought. He'd rousted out our system, sure enough, he got me to describe our planet and its distance from the sun, and then he says to his chief, oh, I know the one he means now, sir. It's on the map. It's called the wart. <laughs> well, Mark Twain got at least one thing right in that fanciful story of Captain Stormfield's visit to heaven. He got this much right about eternity. It is immense. It is immense. It is staggering in its size. It is majestic beyond words. It is brilliant in its flawless perfection. And we will be allowed, says Jesus, to take charge of some part of it. You know, in Christ, maybe you didn't know this about when we come to him. But in Christ, when we come to him, everything, everything, everything in our life gets redeemed. It gets bought back. It is given meaning and purpose, everything. Nothing gets lost. Not some part of it, but all of it is redeemed. In Christ, everything gets redeemed. Nothing lost. No failure is ever lost. No tragedy in our life is ever lost. It has meaning. It will have purpose. No upset, no disappointment, no joy, no desire, no ambition. It all gets bent into the most useful shape imaginable for our work in eternity, you see. That part that we will play that only we can play, and we will play it with incredible joy, that part that he's been preparing us for. It's a promise of position Jesus gives here. 
But in verse 28, it's also a promise of presence. And I will give the overcomer the morning star. You know, since his birth, Jesus has been identified with stars, hasn't he? You remember the travelers from the east. We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship the baby star. Ancient folklore and myths, they saw a connection between a departed loved one and the countless brilliant stars. You you found some comfort in being able to go outside and say, oh, I sure miss Aunt Ruby, but there she is glittering right over there, and right over there is Uncle Everett. They saw a connection between those two. You see, oh, you've become a bright, shining star. That's, that's the reward. Well, you probably remember from your high school days that Hercules and Perseus, they became constellations because of their heroic deeds. And we talk about the stars of the entertainment world and their magazines that are devoted to Hollywood stars and film stars. And there are nightly shows that are dedicated to these people who seem to be able to work some special magic over us. You've probably walked downtown Hollywood and looked at the stars in the sidewalk. Next time you get a chance to do that, get nosy. And stop and listen to the knots of people that gather and stare down at those sidewalk stars. And listen in. And with those unfamiliar names that in years gone by were famous and are now unknown, you will hear a lot of, who's that? They were stars, but they're not stars now. Well, it's nothing like that here when he's talking about the star, the morning star. We're not talking about anything like that here. That that kind of star is too weak. That's the problem. Besides, it's a special star that's emphasized. It's the morning star that he will give us. We talk about Venus, though it is a planet. We talk about it as the morning star because it is the one light that is still present Often when the first streaks of dawn come on and the new sun begins to appear, there you can still see the morning star, Venus. And it seems to be announcing the day that is coming. We call it the morning star, but think about this. The sun, our sun, is also a morning star, and I think a better one. It is a star after all. We're so familiar with it, we forget that. But the sun is a star, and it does announce the morning. In Malachi, last chapter of Malachi's prophecy, he talks about a a person to come that he calls the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, who will rise with healing in his wings. And the little code on who that S-U-N, son of righteousness, is, is broken for us by that dear little lady who had the issue of blood, the unstoppable bleeding in her body, when she reached out and she touched the hem of his garment, and she did that because she knew the scripture that said, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And the edge of that prayer shawl that every Jewish Orthodox wore was called a wing. And if I could just touch the hem, the wing of his garment, she said, I'll be healed because he is the son of righteousness.
Who is this sun? Who is this star, this morning star that will be given to us? Well, it's just clear as a bell as you look at the end of this prophecy in the 22nd chapter, the 16th verse, and it talks about Jesus, who is the root and descendant of David and is, in fact, the bright morning star. When he says for the overcomer, I will not only give you a position of authority, a promise of position and authority, but I will make to you a promise of my presence. And when he says, I will give you the morning star, he's saying, I will give you unreservedly of myself in that day. We will know Christ, you see. We'll know Christ. So the other overcomer gains what? He gains Christ himself. And in a new and more wonderful way than we've ever known him before, we will have, listen, uninterrupted access to Jesus Christ throughout eternity. In his younger days, when he wrote the Gospel of John, the same man who now is an old man on this prison camp island, in his younger days, he wrote a gospel, the gospel of John. And in the gospel of John, he recorded Jesus saying this, where I am, Jesus says, there my servant will be also. It's always been his desire that we be where he is, that he give us himself. There's a better known passage. It's the last night of Jesus' life. When he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. Listen, and if I go and prepare a place for you, he says, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Amen. He gives himself to the overcomer. No wonder we don't have to be troubled. The overcomer will have Christ himself. And why is it called the morning star? Think about it. Think about the brilliance of the sun, the rising, the rising sun, and the promise that is a new day. And that is our Savior. As he rises in our hearts, there's a promise of newness. A, a, a new day is God's promise. It's God's pledge that no matter how dark the night was, it's over now. The sun's coming up. And even for those who love darkness and their deeds were evil, when you see the morning star, that new sun, it means it's over. The darkness of error and ignorance, it's all over. It's over. It's over. You know, so often we, we have this. We're promised the morning star. That we'll have unfettered access to Jesus Christ. I don't even know what that means. but we settle for so much less. In the last century, there was a great scholar, brilliant theologian by the name of Karl Barth, German. He lived in the city of Basel, Switzerland. And one day he got on a bus to ride across town. And a gentleman from out of town, a tourist, sat down next to him. And they began to chat in a friendly fashion. And finally, Karl Barth said to the tourist, well, while you're in the city of Basel, which is a very lovely city, is there anything especially that you would like to see? And he said, oh, yes. 
He said, I really would love to meet the great scholar Karl Barth. Do you know him? Have you ever met him? Karl Barth said, yes, I know him. I, I give him a shave every morning. And at the next stop, the man got up and he went into his hotel thinking to himself, how great it is that I met Karl Barth's barber. <laughs> we don't realize who it is we're dealing with, do we? In our Bible reading calendars, we wrap this up. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back and help us out. And I hope you're using that calendar day by day. I've talked to three or four of you just this morning about how enriching that experience it is. If you need one, there's one on the table. But in our reading this last week, as we read together, we read the Gospel of Mark in the sixth chapter. And there's a story there that's one of those stories that you can read because you've seen it before, and it's easy just to breeze by it and go, oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, got it, got it. But as I read through it, I stopped for a second. And as I thought about it, something in me said, wait a minute. This is bizarre what just happened here. Because it's a little story, and at the end of it, you've got a group of people that took offense at Jesus. They were offended by Jesus Christ. Who can be offended by Jesus? But they were. He didn't do anything to them. He didn't take anything from them. He didn't say anything to them. He didn't slap them upside the head. He did nothing. But they were offended. They took offense. How bizarre. And then as I began to look at why they took offense, I realized... I realize why. They took offense because he had said some things and done some things that were pretty remarkable, and they said, where does this guy come from? Where did he get his wisdom? Where, where, where does he get the power to do miracles? Well, he's our carpenter. He's our carpenter. We know him. We, we know his brothers, and they named his brothers. We know his mother. We, we know his sisters. They began to try and figure him out. And because they started to try and figure him out, they didn't have the right answers and they grew frustrated and they took offense at him. Because they tried to figure Jesus Christ out. But as you go earlier in the story, what is bizarre turns out absolutely strange. They're offended because it says many people were amazed. That's what it says. Because of what Jesus had said and done, it said many were amazed. And that word many is what caught my attention and made me realize this is a bizarre story. Many means many, but it doesn't mean all. All of them were not amazed. And they were not amazed, and they ended up offended. Why? Because they tried to figure Jesus Christ out. Stop trying to figure him out. Just let him be. Let him do what he wants to do. 
just stand and be amazed. They tried to figure him out to explain Christ. You can't. Go to the foot of the cross and stand looking up at him. Look at that figure on the center cross who's dying for you and be amazed. Just be amazed. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.